Well, I hope you've got your handbook with you, your Choosing Unwavering Joy handbook. Let's begin today uh, right off the bat by getting down the big idea from this passage in Philippians chapter number 3. If you don't have a handbook, you're new to Brookstone, just jot this down somewhere, please, and you can pick up a handbook at the Information Center uh, before you leave today. Here's the big idea of the passage we're going to look at today. It is to say that salvation... Salvation is not the end of my spiritual journey, but rather it is the beginning of a lifelong pursuit. Salvation is not the end, but rather the beginning of a lifelong pursuit. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't mean to imply in any way that salvation is a lifelong pursuit. Salvation is a moment. It is an occurrence. It is an event when I trust in Christ as my Savior. That is a singular moment in time when I become a Christian. But that moment of conversion then launches me into a lifelong pursuit. And so this is what Paul wants us to know in this passage. Salvation is not the end of my spiritual journey, but rather the beginning of a lifelong pursuit. I want to talk about that today. You know, so many times uh, people come to me and they express to me the same concern. Now, they may say it in a lot of different ways, but they're expressing the same concern when they do. And it's, it's this. People say to me, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Don't raise your hand or nod your head, but have you ever felt that? I'm not sure that I'm saved. I struggle with the assurance of my salvation. They'll sometimes say, I'm having doubts about whether or not I'm going to heaven. And you should know that no one has ever said that to me with a smile on their face, ever. When people are lacking confidence in their salvation, they are also at the same time lacking joy in their salvation. They're not feeling joyful at all in that lack of confidence. And maybe there are some of you here today who lack that same confidence as well and therefore lack joy. And I want us to talk about it in this fourth week of our study on Rejoice. We're going to read the passage in chapter 3 of Philippians beginning in verse 1. You follow along please as I read. Paul writes, finally my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might, Paul says, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has Whereof he might trust in his flesh, I more. Verse number five, he says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, I am blameless, he says. Verse seven, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. 
Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung or rubbish, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith." Somewhere out in the margin of your Bible next to verse 10, you might write this little two-letter word, O, because verse 10 begins this passionate, expressive prayer, as it were, O, that I may know him, and that I may know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I am following after it so that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We'll stop reading uh, right there with verse number 14. Now before we settle into chapter 3, turn back one page. Let me remind you of chapter 1 and verse number 18 where Paul speaks very early in this letter to the Philippians about his rejoicing. He says in verse 18, What then, notwithstanding in every way, Whether in pretense or in uh, truth, Christ is being preached. And in the preaching of Christ, I am rejoicing and I will continue to rejoice. And then look at chapter number 2 and verse number 18, where he says to these people in Philippi, For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Chapter 1 verse 18, I'm rejoicing, I'm going to keep on rejoicing. Chapter 2, verse 18, you should be rejoicing with me. Chapter 4, verse 4, we've looked at every single week where we've seen both this invitation and this command, rejoice in the Lord always, and he says it again, again I say rejoice, always rejoice in the Lord, and then back to our text in chapter 3, verse number 1, where he says, finally, brethren, or finally, or furthermore, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, notice, uh, you've already noticed that Paul is emphasizing and re-emphasizing, stating and restating, some might say overstating, this call to Christian joy. But you'll notice in verse number one of chapter number three that he acknowledges, he admits the fact that he is being redundant in his challenges and his invitations to them that they ought to be a people who rejoice. He says in verse number one of chapter three, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, now look, to write the same things to you, to say this to you over and over again, to me, it's not grievous. In other words, it doesn't bother me. I'm I'm not burdened by the fact that I'm saying the same things to you over and over again. Any parent in the room know that there's value in repetition? Amen. 
that we say the same thing, we teach the same lessons over and over again. Uh, Every good teacher knows this, that there's value in building upon the previous foundation and you say the same things over again. Paul says in verse number one, look, I, I know that I'm telling you over and over again about the value and the virtue of rejoicing and the importance of rejoicing in your life, but it's okay. I'm not burdened by the fact that I'm telling you this over again. In fact, he says in verse number one, rather for you... It's safe that I do it. I'm safeguarding your Christian walk. I'm safeguarding your effectiveness by encouraging you repeatedly that you would rejoice. In fact, he goes on in verse number two to say, beware, watch out for. Now, what does the word beware mean? Three times in verse number two, he says, beware, beware, beware. What does beware mean? It means danger. When you're being aware of your surroundings and you're beware, you're looking out for what's around you, you realize there's a threat at hand. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, your joy is at risk. Your joy is in danger. You need to beware that you don't lose your joy and take guard that, in fact, you, that you guard your joy. Why? Now, let me, let me just apply this to all of us very practically. Why is Christian joy so important? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, Satan can never take away your salvation. If you're glad, say amen, right? I can't lose my salvation. Satan hates me. He hates you. He would love for us to be lost, dragged down to hell forever, but I belong to the Lord. He can't have me. I'm, I'm free in Jesus. There's no way I'm ever going to lose that. But if he can't take my salvation, what's he going to do? He'll try to steal my joy. He'll drain, try to create circumstances or or rob me of what's true in my life so that the joy drains out of my life because people without joy are people without effect. If I am not walking in joy, I cannot be effective for the Lord. So he seeks to drain our joy. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says this. You can make a note, go read it later. This word very plainly, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So Paul says, look, I'm not bothered by the fact that I'm saying this to you over and over again. In fact, I'm safeguarding your joy, which is under attack. Now he says in verse 2, beware three times. What are we to beware of? Verse two, beware of dogs, number one. Number two, beware of evil workers. Number three, beware of the concision. Who's Paul warning them about? Who who does Paul have in mind when he is uh, mentioning these three different descriptions of the same group of people or the same attack on the joy of these Philippian believers. Well, let's work the description backwards. Begin at the end of verse number two. He says to them, beware of the concision. Now, the word concision means to cut or to mutilate. And so when he says in verse number two, beware of the concision, he's speaking of those who would require, who would impose upon them an external marking circumcision to be direct, who would impose upon them that external requirement for an internal transformation, who would make for them the requirement that they would be circumcised in order to be saved. He says in verse number 
uh, to beware of the concision. In front of that, he says, beware of evil workers. Now, he doesn't mean generally. He's not thinking about, you know, there's evil in the world. He's saying there are some workers who have an agenda, and their agenda is evil, and it relates to this idea of, of cutting or of, of uh, the concision. And then in verse number two, he calls them dogs. Beware of dogs. Interestingly, um, the Jewish people uh, in Paul's day oftentimes would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. They would call them Gentile dogs, a reflection of the Gentile lack of morality and, and, and lack of religious adherence. And they just live like dogs, they would say. So the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. Well, Paul says, uh, you should be uh, beware of these dogs. So Paul is referring specifically to what a group of people that we would call Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers plagued Paul's ministry everywhere he went. He would plant a church as he did in Philippi. They would then come in behind him and begin to impose upon all the people in that church these legalistic requirements uh, in order for them to have salvation. Sure, you can trust in Jesus, but you must keep the law. Sure, you can trust in Jesus, but you must keep the Sabbath. Sure, you can trust in Jesus, but you must be circumcised. Sure, you can trust in Jesus, but you must, but you must, but you must. These were the Judaizers, and they were going so far as to command these Gentiles that in order to be saved, they must in fact be circumcised. And as a result of that, so many people in, Philipp, uh, in the Philippian church and in other churches that Paul planted, so many people in our churches doubt their salvation, listen, because they can't live up to the legalistic requirements that are being placed on them, the unbiblical legalistic requirements placed on them by religion. So religion says do A, B, C, D, and F, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I graduated in 83, as you'll recall. <laughs> Do all of these rules, and then you're safe in your salvation. Well, no. So because we can't live up to those rules, then we doubt our salvation. It's a very common experience where genuine believers feel unsecure in their salvation. People who have genuinely trusted in Christ lack confidence in their salvation because they can't seem to live up to these unbiblical commandments that are being placed upon them. It was happening in Philippi, and Paul calls them out. He calls them by name. In fact, it's interesting. He says to them, uh, they call you dogs, Gentile dogs. Paul says, they're the dogs. They're the ones who are imposing these rules upon you uh, and, and commanding you to follow all these rules in order to be saved. And as a result of that, you're lacking confidence in your salvation. Now, this really is what it boils down to, right? If I'm going to have confidence in my salvation, if I'm going to be assured of my salvation, and as a result of that have joy, then it all boils down to a matter of where does my assurance come from or where do I place my confidence in order to know for sure that I'm saved? That's the question. So here's what Paul would say. Write it down if you will. He teaches us here that confidence in Christ alone. Everybody say the word alone. Confidence in Christ alone is the foundation of our joy. Now I want you to pay close attention to this passage today, especially 
if you've ever doubted whether or not you were good enough to remain saved, if you've doubted your, your, your ability uh, to, to be or to, to say, I'm saved with assurance. Um, listen to what Paul says. Look at verse number three. In verse three, he speaks about the placement of our confidence. He says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit. Now, by the way, when he says we're the circumcision, that word would refer to the, the Jewish people. It's an overarching word to refer to the Jewish people as a whole. But Paul says we, speaking of those who not who are Jewish heritage necessarily, but we who have trusted in Christ, he says we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He makes the point in verse number three that where we place our confidence is in fact, the, it makes all the difference. It's the key factor. Notice verse number three. He says that those who rejoice, they rejoice in Christ Jesus. Those who rejoice in their salvation rejoice in Christ Jesus. And they rejoice in Christ Jesus precisely because they do not place any confidence in their flesh. There's no rejoicing in their salvation in their own behavior or patterns of life. Their rejoicing is all confidently placed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, having made that point, Paul goes on to set himself up as the would-be standard bearer, beginning in verse number uh, 4. He begins to talk about how that some of us maybe would think we would have a hope that we could uh, have confidence in the flesh, that maybe we would be good enough, that we had kept the rules well enough, that we were well positioned enough, that perhaps God would accept us. He sets himself up as the would-be standard bearer. Look at verse number four. Though I might also, I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anybody thinks that he has whereof he can trust in his flesh, I'm more. Here's essentially what Paul does. He said, now, by the way, if you're in the Philippian church, if you're in the Brookstone church, and you think that you have ever done anything or ever could do anything that would allow you to be assured of your salvation based on your own works, Paul says, I could have greater confidence than you, and I have no confidence in my flesh. So if I have no confidence in my flesh, you certainly should have none in yours. He gives five reasons in verses four, five, and six why he might have confidence in his religious heritage and his religious works. He begins by speaking of his pedigree in verse number five. He says, uh, I could have confidence in the flesh because, verse five, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, first of all, I have come, I am Here's a way to say it. I am pure Jew through and through. There are no proselytes in my ancestry. My grandmother was a Jew. My grandfather was a Jew. My mama was a Jew. My daddy was a Jew. I am pure Jewish blood coursing through my veins. I'm, I am of the stock of Israel. Not only am I of the stock of Israel, he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, the royal tribe of Benjamin, the best tribe, some of them. In fact, the Benjamites would surely say, the greatest tribe of Israel. I have a good religious 
Jewish pedigree. Then he would secondly offer that he might say, I could have confidence in my flesh because of the way I was raised, how strictly my family raised me in the Jewish faith. Verse number five, circumcised the eighth day just as the law of God prescribes. He describes his family and himself in verse five as being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And what he's referring to in in saying we're Hebrews of the Hebrews is that he's saying we're not Hellenistic Jews. So in Paul's day, they would have said, well, not every Jewish person uh, is really the same level of a Jewish person because uh, they might have a Jewish heritage, but they lived a very uh, Greek-influenced or Hellenistic life. So they spoke the Greek language, they followed the Greek traditions, uh, but yet they were Jewish by birth. So that's not our family. We weren't that uh, Christmas and Easter kind of Christian or Jewish family. We, we didn't just go to, go to Sabbath once every, every uh, six weeks or so. No, no. We were Jewish of Jewish, Hebrew of Hebrew. He said, that's the way I grew up. I grew up in a strict religious family. He says in verse number five, regarding my training, I, I might have confidence in the flesh because of my religious training. He says, concerning or touching the law, I'm a Pharisee. Paul, do you know the law of Moses? Do you know the Torah? Can you quote uh, the law? Can you tell us the 613 requirements of the law? He said, are you kidding me? I'm a Pharisee, man. I'm trained in the law. I went to the finest uh, legal schools. I know the law like none other. He says in verse number six, what about zeal? Have I really been uh, passionate about my Jewishness. He says in verse number six, concerning zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I put Christians to death. Why did I do that? Because they were a threat to Judaism. And then he would say in verse number six as well, and then my behavior, by the way that I've lived in verse number six, is touching righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. He says, you couldn't find anything in the law that, that I violated. Now here's the point. Paul is saying if anybody can have confidence in their flesh, I can. I was born to the right family, raised the right way, got the right training, went to the right schools, went to the right synagogues, learned all I could about my religion, and was passionate in living it out. That's his description. And yet he says, I have no confidence in the flesh. And what Paul is saying to us is if you want to have joy, the foundation of your joy is to rightly place your confidence in Christ alone. By the way, the hymn writers have taught us this over the years, haven't they? They've said it pretty well. They've framed this discussion pretty well. I was thinking about Rock of Ages, which my wife has sung over the years beautifully so many times. But in that song, Rock of Ages, uh, it has this lyric, this line, nothing in my hand I bring. Everybody shout the word nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. I don't come to God with the works of my hands. I come empty-handed simply to thy cross I claim. That's the right placement of our confidence. That great old hymn, nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. These verses say it this way, for my cleansing, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
for my pardon. This is my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of works, tis all of grace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that washes white as snow, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are you with me? Paul says... If you want to have joy in your Christian life, remember that your confidence must be placed squarely on Jesus. And even as he goes through verses 4, 5, and 6, and he talks about all of these things that he had done, all of these works that he had performed, all of his adherence to the law, he was saying that before I met Jesus, I was building a ledger. I was filling out a ledger sheet. I was building a a portfolio of religious behavior that would surely make me acceptable to God. Can I ask you a question? What are you putting into your portfolio? If you want to be acceptable to God, if you want to have absolute, undoubting, unwavering assurance that you stand right before God, what are you putting into your portfolio to have that confidence in that assurance. Are you building, there's the answer, nothing but the blood, nothing but Jesus, but are you, are you putting into your portfolio, are you writing down on that ledger sheet, I was raised in a Christian home, my dad was a pastor, my grandfather, my mama was a Christian, I went to vacation Bible school, I got baptized when I was 12, I've memorized John eleven thirty five. Shortest verse in the Bible, by the way. I've done all of these things. I have done these these works. And these works make me right with God. That's what Paul was doing. He was building a ledger. But keep reading verse number seven. But. Everybody say but. But. I've done this. I've done that. My ledger sheet was full. My list of works was profound. My upbringing was unparalleled. My, my life was blameless. I've done, I've, I went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I've done all these things, verse 7. But all of those things that were gained to me, I have counted loss. When he says, I've counted them loss, The word means I have looked at them all. I've looked at the left side of the ledger with all of my religious behavior, all of my good works. I've looked at the right side of the ledger. There's only one thing on the right side of the ledger, and it's Jesus. And I've looked at the two and determined all of these things are worthless compared to Christ. All of these things, in fact, are loss. The word loss doesn't mean they're neutral. If you're listening, shout amen. Amen. When he says, I've counted them loss, it doesn't mean to say, well, they're okay, but they don't really compare to Jesus. No. When he says, I've counted them loss, the word loss means they actually are a net negative to my confidence. They actually provide a disadvantage If I am in any way trusting in them, they drag on my confidence. What he says is, I have simply taken them off the ledger completely. That doesn't mean that he ever regretted 
being raised right or living right. Don't misunderstand me. But he's saying, when it comes to my confidence, when it comes to my assurance so that I can have joy, I don't even count them. Do you know that so many people add Jesus to their list of good works? Well, yes, I've trusted Jesus, but I've also done A, B, C, and D. Yes, I've trusted Christ, but I'm so glad I have such assurance because of these things. Paul said, I don't, I don't even keep them on my ledger. I take them off. I count them as lost. In fact, he goes on in verse number eight to say, I have considered them all rubbish compared to the excellency of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here's the point Paul is making. Not that you and I shouldn't be concerned about right living. We should. Not that we shouldn't be concerned about obeying the commands of Scripture. Of course we should. Paul is saying if you want to have confidence, assurance of your salvation, you will find that assurance in not even listing those accomplishments, but rather in simply saying, simply to thy cross I cling. It is in, my confidence is in Christ Jesus alone. He goes on in verse number 9 to allude to God's all-seeing eyes into this day when judgment will come. When he says in verse number 9 that I may be in that day of, of judgment when God evaluates my life, when, when I stand before my creator, may I be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which I obtained through the law, but only having that righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is, which is of God by faith. Paul simply makes the point that, that if we hope to have an entrance into heaven, and if we hope to have assurance in this life that we will be granted an entrance into heaven, we must clear the ledger. We must wipe off the countertop of religion. We must put out of our mind any hope, any assurance based upon our behavior and simply say, it is Jesus Christ and nothing else. That is the foundation of Christian joy. This is Paul's point. But remember from when we began a few minutes ago that I said to you that the big idea is that salvation, trusting in Jesus alone, is not the end. It's the beginning of this lifelong pursuit. So while Paul teaches us to put our assurance in Christ alone, he also shows us how to press forward in that faith. Write this down. Paul goes on in this passage to teach us that continuing to pursue Christ leads to full joy. Trusting in Christ alone is where I begin to build a life of assurance and confidence and joy. But once I've done that, now I, I need to continue to pursue Christ so that I might have full joy. Listen to what he says in verse number 10. I asked you earlier to write out in the margin the word, oh. Verse 10, oh, that I may know him. Now you compare verse number 10, oh that I may know him, to verse number 8, where he says, I've counted all things but lost for the excellency or the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So it says, I've cleared the ledger, I've wiped the slate clean, and I know Christ. That's where my joy begins. But then he says in verse 10, but, but now I really want to know him. Now that I know him, now I want to keep on knowing him more fully. I want to pursue knowing him by experience. That's what the word know in verse number 10 means. I don't want to just 
understand him. That's verse 8. All things are rubbish compared to the excellency of understanding and knowing who Christ is and receiving him. Verse 10, oh, that I may now know him by experience. That's what verse 10 means. Oh, that I may pursue the knowledge of him. Oh, that I may know him fully, that I may learn of him by my experience with him. So how do we come to know him more fully? Well, verse number 10 says that I may know him, beginningly, he says, and the power of his resurrection. So jot that down somewhere. Paul says, I want to experience Christ by experiencing the power of his resurrection. Uh, Let me read to you from Romans chapter 6. In a few weeks, we're going to have our summer baptism down in the creek here uh, on the evening of August the 25th. And before that baptism, I'll meet with the folks who are being baptized. I'll explain to them why they're being baptized in the fashion that they are, what baptism means, and I'll read to them from Romans chapter number 6. So listen to Romans chapter 6. Uh, And verse number five, he says in verse five, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of Christ's death. Now, in Romans six, Paul's describing salvation, the moment of conversion. And what he tells us in Romans six is that at the moment of conversion, we are immersed in Christ's death. We share in his death. We die to our old life. And he says in verse 5 that if we have in fact experienced this death in the moment of salvation, Romans 6 and verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, then we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now listen carefully. He says in Romans 6 that Christ died. If I'm going to be born again, I must die with him. Die to sin, die to self, trust in him and his death. And in the same way that Christ died, he rose. And if I have died to sin and self, then I should rise to live with him. Verse number five, for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of the similitude of his resurrection. Knowing this, not thinking it, but being assured of it, knowing this, that our old life, our old man is crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Verse 8, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The whole point Paul's making in Romans 6 is, look, there's a life to be lived once you meet Jesus. There's a brand new life. Verse 4 of that passage says that we would walk in newness of life. Where does that new life come from? Paul says in Philippians 3, here's where it comes from. It comes from the resurrection life of Jesus within us. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit who who brings to life uh, our spirit and we begin to live in the power of his resurrection. So Philippians 3 and verse number 10, that I may know him fully, that I may come to know him more fully as I share in the power of his resurrection. Secondly, he says in verse 10, that I may also have the fellowship of his suffering. If you're listening, I want you to say amen. Because this, this gets down to where the rubber meets the road. Paul says the way that I'm going to know him fully is when I long, when I'm 
more than just willing to, but when I expect and I even desire a share in his sufferings. That's clearly what he says in verse number 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Oh, that I may know him more fully in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And he goes on to say in verse number 10, in fact, fellowshipping in his sufferings so much so that I may be made conformable unto his death. Now, he says to us in these verses that we come to know him by sharing in this, in this death with Christ and in this resurrection with Christ. So many people believe that the Christian life, and this is the fault of Western Christianity, it's the fault of prosperity gospel, which says that the Christian life is all about you never dying to yourself, but rather living to yourself. And that God gets up every morning so that you never experience sacrifice, so that you never experience any sort of personal dying to your own ambitions and desires and ways and will. Rather, you name it, you claim it, and God exists that you will have this incredible experience all the way through life with never any difficulty along the way. And do you know how well that fleshes out in 99.9% of lives on this earth? Not very well. It tends to work out the best for the people who write the books about it and sell millions of copies. And so what happens when you as a Christian are told that Jesus suffered and died so that you can in fact live having everything that you ever wanted in absolute perfection and God gets up every morning to be your sugar daddy to make sure that you never ever have any death or loss or die to your own wills or ways and it's all about your will and your way. And then that doesn't happen. What happens to your joy? What happens to your assurance that God is with you? What happens to to your assurance that you, in fact, belong to him? Because if you did, wouldn't you have all of these things? Paul said, I know him. My confidence is in him. But I want to know him more fully. And the way I know him more fully is I become like him, sharing in his suffering, even becoming like him in his death, so that I can live in the power of his resurrection. Let me say it to you plainly. If Jesus has never said to you, give that up, die to that, that's not my will, surrender that to me, sacrifice, if he's never said that to you, then I would suggest you're not growing to know him very well. Paul said, I want to know him. And I want to know him by dying to sin and dying to self. Now, when he talks about experiencing the power of his resurrection, you might remember he said this in another place, in a little bit of a different way, in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20. Do you know that verse? It says, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives within me, he says. Jesus said it the same said the same thing in Matthew 16, 24. You know that passage, many of you do. Where Jesus said, if any man will come after me, if any man's gonna be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and die daily to himself. And so Paul says the way that we come, Jesus would say the same thing, the way that we come to know him more fully is through dying to sin, dying to self, and this resurrection power of Christ living through us. And all three of these descriptions in chapter 3 of Philippians and verse number 10 speak to the power of pursuing an intimacy with Christ 
where we are so like him, where our lives are so transformed, so pressed into the mold of the sacrificial life and death of Jesus and the resurrection power of Jesus, where we're so much like him that we begin to walk in an intimacy with him that brings deeper and deeper knowledge and deeper and deeper joy along the way. And ultimately, that then is experienced in its completeness in our resurrection from the dead. In fact, verse number 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might, or ultimately so that I will attain to the resurrection of the dead. And ultimately, Christ will come, and we will be raised and will be with him forever. Paul says that the way I come to know him more fully is by sharing in his suffering and death and resurrection. Now, if you're with me, shout amen. Now, Paul then goes on to say, look at it in verse number 12. He goes on to say, not as though I had already attained. Um, Can I ask you a question? Has anybody in the room fully arrived where you want to be in your walk with the Lord? No. And Paul hadn't either. He says in verse number 12, I'm not where I want to be yet. Not as though I had already attained. Either we're already fully mature or or complete or perfect. But, verse 12 says, I follow after. I'm pursuing this kind of life. I'm pursuing a life like Christ's life. Sacrificial and dying to self. I'm pursuing that so that I can then share in his resurrection power. Can I ask you a question? Can you say that? Can you say that that from the moment you came to faith in Jesus, here you are at the point of salvation, here's where you will be in heaven. From this point to that point, have you been on a trajectory of saying, I want to pursue to be more like Christ, or have you just begun to go away from him? Or just to stand still? And one day... I'll die, one day Jesus will come and I'll go to heaven. Praise God, that'll be great. But until then, it's all about me. It's all about my life. It's all about what I want. Is that you? Or would you say, I have put my confidence in Christ alone and now I am pursuing him? Well, Paul would say we should pursue him. We haven't attained it yet, verse 12, but we should follow after it or pursue it so that, I love this, I may take hold of that for which Christ also took hold of me. Here's what he says. Jesus took hold of me for this very thing. Jesus apprehended me. Jesus saved me for this thing so that I could go to heaven? No, that's the cherry on top. He took hold of me so that my life could pursue his likeness. And when that likeness comes completely, I will be in his presence in heaven. So he said, Christ took hold of me for this, and so therefore I am constantly trying to take hold. I am pursuing that for which he took hold of me. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended or to have made it or to have arrived, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press forward. I'm stretching toward the prize. And what is the prize? The prize is when I get to heaven, right? Yeah. 
But the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That doesn't just mean at the moment I die, he calls me to heaven. It doesn't just mean at the moment he returns, I'm resurrected to go to be with him. It means that all along the way of my life, he's calling me upward to be more like him. And I'm stretching every day to be more like him. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to be made conformable in his death. I want to be willing to die. He died for sin. I want to die to sin. He died for reconciliation. I want to die to myself, my own ways, for the cause of reconciliation. He rose again. I want his resurrection power to be in me. And even though I'm not there yet, Paul would say, I stretch every day that I will take hold of that prize, that I will experience, that I will be participating in the upward call of God in Christ. Salvation's moment, conversion, all of my confidence in Christ, wiping the ledger clean. I trust in Jesus alone. That's the foundation of joy. But then the fullness of joy comes as I just keep stretching, 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 stretching. I want to be like Jesus, like Jesus experiencing his power until finally one day it's complete when I'm in him. If you said to me today, are you married I would say, well, yeah, of course I'm married. And if you said, prove it, I'd say, well, I got a wedding band on. That's the proof of my marriage, right? Now, does that prove anything? Not a thing. I could say, I, I know I'm married. I don't think I'm married. I know I'm married. I've got the pictures to prove it. I could go get the VHS tape. If you Remember, I graduated in 83. Got married in 84. I could get the VHS tape and show you, if we could find a way to play it, the video of our wedding. I know I'm married because I remember the wedding. Is that how I know I'm married? You know how I know I'm married? Because every single day, I'm walking in relationship with the woman that I'm married to. That's how I know. And some of us lost our confidence of salvation we lack joy in our salvation because we got saved 20, 30 years ago and we stopped walking with Jesus 18 or, or 25 years ago. And we're just living for ourselves. And every time we think, am I saved? I can't go to it. Yeah, because I'm walking with Jesus today. I'm experiencing the upward call of God in my life today. I'm more like him today. No, we have to go, well, I think I am because I got way back there somewhere. I got that thing happened. I got, yeah, surely, right? I'm good, right? I don't know, are you? Here's how you'll know you are when you pursue becoming more like him and walking in his power. Let's pray together.